If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I invite you to take them, please, and turn to the book of 1 Peter, the book of 1 Peter, chapter 2, and the first three verses, primarily verse 3, but the first three verses. This message today, entitled, If You Have Tasted the Goodness of the Lord, is another in our series of looking at different verses of Scripture throughout the Bible that contain the word if. And of course, you remember that the word if can be used in a question mark or a doubt, uh, but primarily throughout the scriptures, it's translated since or because. And so today we're looking at verse three. Uh, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord, it could be interpreted both ways. It's, it's a question mark. Um, have you tasted the goodness of the Lord? If you have. And then, of course, since you have tasted or because you have tasted the goodness of the Lord. So let's look at 1 Peter chapter 2 in the first three verses. Therefore, putting aside all malice, all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Now, in my translation that I read from, which is the New American Standard Translation, the word is kindness. If you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. But the word kindness can also be translated goodness and would be accurately translated if you have tasted the goodness of the Lord. The two go together. If you are good, you're kind. If God is good, it's because he's kind. And if he's kind, it's because he's good. They're interchangeable meanings. But the word could also be translated gracious and is so in the King James Version, if you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Surely all of you here this morning who profess to know the Lord as your Lord and Savior have experienced the graciousness of God. How good and how kind and how gracious the Lord is. The word can also be translated, I didn't put this on your notes, but it can also be translated easy. And it is so over in Matthew where the Lord said, uh, come unto me all you that labor and heavy laden and take my yoke upon you for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The word easy there, of course, meaning good and kind and gracious. God is good. And even when he puts a yoke around us, it is a yoke of kindness and of goodness. Many of us grew up singing a little chorus that proclaims God is so good. And that song actually contains some very profound theology, theology because goodness is one of the infinite attributes of God. You remember when the rich young ruler came to Jesus and fell down at his feet and said, good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus asked him the question, why do you call me good? There is none good but God. The reason why I think he asked the young man this question was because he thought of Jesus nothing more than being a teacher. He called him master. The, the Greek word is rabbi or teacher. Uh, good teacher. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus was saying to him, am I just a man? Am I just a teacher? Surely I am more than that. I'm not just a master teacher, I'm also God, and you've got to begin acknowledging me as such if you want to have eternal life. And so Jesus is the good master, the good teacher, and God is good. 
Someone once said that God only is originally, essentially, eternally, infinitely, and inherently good in himself. God is good. This is not the first biblical expression that we find in the Bible that says that God is good. Actually, Peter is quoting from Psalm, Psalm 34 and verse 8, which says that God is good. Notice in the verse, verse 3, he says, if you have tasted. Now, the word tasted here is, it doesn't just mean a little sip. You, you remember when you were first asked to take a a little sip of something. You didn't know what it was. You didn't know what it tasted like. So rather than taking just a big gulp of it or a big swallow of it, you just kind of sipped it a little bit. But then when you did, oh my, how delicious, how good. And so you wanted more of it. And so here he is saying, if you have tasted, he's not talking about just a little sip. He's talking about a full gulp. If you just gulp it down, that it gets down on the inside of you. And you take a big swallow of it. You really have tasted and experienced the goodness of God, the kindness of God, he is saying here. So once you do this, once you, once you take a swallow and a deep uh, gulp, if you please, if I may reverently explain it that way, of the Lord Jesus Christ, you're, go you're going to want more. You're going to want more. And uh, so this is what he is saying here. If you have tasted, since you have tasted, you, you say that you have tasted then surely uh, you've discovered and tasted the goodness of God and the kindness of God. And having tasted it, don't you want more of it? Surely you do. There are several things that are written out for you on your outline today that I want to explore as we think about during this Thanksgiving season about our being thankful to God for his goodness and his kindness and to be thankful to God that he is so gracious in what he is and who he is and what he does for us and what he has given to us. God is generous. James tells us in his epistle that he's not stingy. He doesn't have a, a clenched fist that our God gives liberally and upbraideth not to all who ask and who believe. Liberally means he just pours it out. I'm not a liberal. I'm a conservative as you well know, but boy, when it comes to the grace of God. I'm a liberal. I want God to just liberally saturate me with his grace and mercy and goodness and kindness. And that's what James was saying. You need to ask the Lord for it. You can experience it. Peter is saying to us, since you have tasted the goodness of the Lord, the kindness of the Lord, surely you will want more. So let's begin this morning by simply saying, first of all, that God's goodness leads to repentance. Notice on your outline, if you have your outline with you, Romans chapter two and verse four, where he says, the apostle Paul says, the goodness of God leads you to repentance, to repentance. Now, repentance is extremely important. It literally means to turn around, to be going in one direction and you're doing it a complete about face and go in the opposite direction. Spiritually, what it means is that you have been going the way of sin and iniquity and transgressions. You're an evil person. If you were together, your righteousness around you, the Bible says, it would be as filthy rags in the sight of God. We've all gone uh, our own way. Isaiah the prophet said, the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all because we've all gone the wrong way. We've gone away from God. Someone has said that when you are born, you're born with your back toward God. And repentance means that you turn around and face the Lord. And so you, instead of going away from the Lord, repentance means you realize that you've been going away from the Lord. 
You realize that you've been selfish and sinful and evil and wicked? There are none of us righteous. No, not one. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So you don't have to look at your neighbor and say, oh, look how evil that person is. You're just as evil in the eyes of God. There's nothing that you can do, nothing that you are that merits the grace and mercy and love and kindness and goodness of Almighty God. But repentance means that you recognize how evil you are, how sinful you are, and you turn away from your sins and you turn to the Lord. You turn to God and in doing so you repent of your sins and you confess him as your Lord and as your Savior. This was the first message that our Lord proclaimed when he began his public ministry it was like, likewise with John the Baptist. John the Baptist says, repent, bring evidence of your, of your conversion experience and of your repentance. Jesus said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was the very first recorded message in the gospel of Matthew that Jesus proclaimed. That God wants you to repent and turn from your sins and, and turn to him. Uh, in um, repentance, someone has said, that our wickedness demands it, justice requires it, Christ preached it, God expects it, and the Holy Spirit convicts us of it. So we need to repent of our sins. Second Peter, you're in First Peter, just look at Second Peter, chapter three and verse nine. Second Peter, chapter three and verse nine. The Lord is not slow about his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but all might come to what? Repentance. So God is patient. We often wonder, why, why doesn't God just take all the evil out of the world? Or better yet, why doesn't God just take us out of the world? I mean, we know the Lord, we've been saved, we follow Jesus. There are a lot of wicked and evil people in the world. Why doesn't God just take us out of the world right now? Well, if he were to do that, where would he begin? He would begin with you and you and you and me because there are none righteous, no, not one. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So where would he begin? He would begin with us with us. So we'd be thankful for God's patience, God's mercy, for God's understanding. And he says in 2 Peter 3, 9 that he does not delight in and take great joy in, in, in people perishing. God doesn't enjoy having to send somebody to hell. God loves you and he cares about you and he doesn't want you to go to hell. He wants you to come to heaven and live with him forever. That's why he is patient. And if there's someone here today who's never trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior, please understand that God loves you. He's patient with you. He's giving you ample opportunity to respond to his call and to accept his son as your Lord and as your Savior. And you must do it or you will perish. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would never perish but have everlasting life. Everlasting life. One of my favorite authors that I enjoy reading after is the late Dr. C.E. McCartney. He was a Presbyterian minister, very famous in his day. He lived uh, several, several decades ago. He was a very prolific publisher, wrote, wrote a lot of books. And one of the sermons that he preached was uh, about the repentance of the Lord. In fact, that was the name of it, repentance. Let me read just a brief paragraph to you from what he said. Whenever I preach on the subject of repentance... I'm well nigh overcome with the wonder of it. How wonderful a thing repentance is. 
What if Christ had come to call only the righteous to himself and not sinners to repentance? What if God would let us sin but wouldn't let us repent? What if he would let us fall but he would not put out his hand to lift us up again? What if he would let us wander into the far country but would not permit us to come to ourselves and start the homeward journey to our father's house? What if he had let the dying thief mock him and curse him on the cross but did not let him pray for a place in paradise? What if Christ had let Peter curse him and deny him but had not looked upon him and let him weep the tears of repentance? What if God permitted us to do the worst and be the worst and yet did not permit us to desire and resolve to be the best and to do the best? Yes, great, passing great is the wonder and the beauty of repentance. It is repentance which makes the gospel a message of joy. And although in heaven there must be a great many things to wonder at and to rejoice over, our Lord said that the one thing that causes more joy in heaven among the inhabitants of those who are there is the repentance of a sinner. There is joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. Listen, God is good and gracious and kind and merciful to you when he let Jesus die on the cross, sent him to do that, to die in your place, becoming sin for you who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him so that we could be saved. Look at the cross of Calvary and rejoice in the goodness and kindness and graciousness of Almighty God. If there's any one thing that we ought to be thankful for during this Thanksgiving season, it truly is the goodness of God and the idea of repentance, that the goodness of God leads us to repent of our sins and embrace Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. The second thing that I want to describe with you and share with you about God's goodness is that his goodness satisfies the heart. Oh, it satisfies the heart more than and like anything else other than the love and grace of God. Jeremiah 31, 14 says, my people will be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. Satisfied with God's goodness. Satisfied with God's goodness. Now, did you notice in the newspaper this week, bluebells coming back. <laughs> Hallelujah. <laughs> I have gone up and down the aisles like many of you. Saw some of you. Standing there in front of the freezer, looking at all those empty shelves. When is it coming back? Bluebell. You see, when you've tasted bluebell, <laughs> you've tasted ice cream. And it's not just a brand, folks. It's, it's, ice, it's ice cream. It's the real thing. And once you've tasted bluebell, nothing else satisfies. Nothing else. I tried it. I bought another brand and it just doesn't measure up. It, it just was flat. It just was terrible. Now, because I'm diabetic, I get the no sugar added kind. But uh, boy, once you've tasted Bluebell, nothing else satisfies. Once you've tasted Jesus, nothing else satisfies. Nothing, nothing, nothing else satisfies. The if in this verse of scripture does not express any doubt. We have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. 
His sacrifice for us was an act of unspeakable goodness and kindness. In the book of Titus, chapter 3, verses 4 through 7, But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we would have been made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now in Titus 3, 4 through 7 that I've just read, there are four words, very important, but when the kindness of God, there's kindness. He talks about according to His mercy, and then He's poured out upon us richly. His grace would be making us the heirs according to His riches and hope in glory. So the kindness, the mercy, the richness of God, and we are all heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. And once you have detasted, if I can put it this way, the, the delicious, the delicious grace and kindness and goodness of God, there is nothing else that satisfies. Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled filled to the point of satisfaction that you want nothing else that this world has to offer that Jesus and Jesus alone is enough and his goodness is wonderful. So God's goodness leads us to repentance and God's goodness satisfies the hunger heart. Jesus said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come unto me and drink. The third thing that is found here is that God's goodness encourages us to grow and mature in our faith. Go back to the verses in 1 Peter chapter 2 and look at verse 1. Therefore, putting aside all malice and, and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Wonder why he would begin what we're talking about with those kinds of words talking about malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Because unfortunately, some Christian people who profess to be Christians uh, either may not be Christian at all or just so worldly that they can't help it. But, you know, some of, some of, the, some of the meanest people I've ever met call themselves Christians. Really do. We oftentimes crucify our wounded. We, we slander them with the tongue talk about them behind their backs, stab them, try to disgrace them, being hateful and mean-spirited. Why would a person who professes to be a Christian want to be that way? To me, it's an indication that one or two things are wrong. Either they're so worldly that they don't understand what they're doing or else they just never trusted Christ. And this may be why Peter says, lay these things aside unless you haven't tasted the goodness of the Lord. Could you ever visualize Jesus being malicious or Jesus being deceitful or Jesus being a hypocrite or that he was envious or that he went around slandering everybody? No. So if you are a born again Christian, if you know Jesus as your savior, you take those things off as though you were removing dirty clothes and you lay them to the side and you put on the dress of righteousness that the Lord provides for you and you begin to grow. And you begin to, uh, to 
strengthen yourself by the, by the drinking of, he, he uses milk as a, a metaphor for, for the word of the Lord. And he says, drink, drink the milk, drink it as though you were a newborn baby. Have you ever heard a newborn baby crying to be fed? Uh, boy, there's nothing that will satisfy it but uh, milk. And, and uh, the baby will not cease screaming and crying until his, his need is met and his satisfaction is met. And he wants the milk. And, and Peter is saying, you, you need to desire and crave and yearn and long for the milk of God's word as though you were a newborn baby. Why? Why does a baby need milk? Well, to satisfy its hunger, yes. But to help it grow. To help the baby grow. The baby must grow. You wouldn't want a baby to remain a baby all his or her life. Uh, the part of being born is that so that you can grow and develop and be strong and be the adult that, that God has made you and is making you to be. And how do you do that? You, you start off with milk. You don't sit down the, the day after a baby is born and, and place a T-bone steak in front of him and a fork and a knife and say, get after it, kid. No, you've got to build him up. You've got to give him milk. You start off with that, that formula or with a milk and, and then slowly, gradually progress on to a much more uh, adult-sized uh, meal. Uh, Paul talks about this over in Corinthians where he says that some of you have been Christian for so long, you're, you're still sucking on spiritual milk bottles. That I wanted to give you a full course meal, you know, of a steak and baked potatoes and green beans and a salad and, and bluebell ice cream and all, all, of, those, all of those things. Wanted to give you all of that, but spiritually you were not capable and developed enough that you could digest such a meal as this. You're still spiritual babies. Grow up. Grow up. And God wants you to grow up too. Like newborn babies, long for the milk of the word. The words long for means to strongly desire this, to yearn after it, even to crave it. Jesus, as I said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So God's goodness encourages us to grow and mature in our faith. Number four, God's goodness was demonstrated in the person of Jesus Christ. In the book of Acts chapter 10 and verse 38, the scripture says of our Lord, you know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power and how he went about doing good. I cannot imagine Jesus doing anything else or saying anything else or being anything else than good. The goodness of God, and he was God and is God, is one of the greatest and strongest attributes of the Lord that he is in good. Uh, there are a couple of ways that our Lord demonstrated his goodness. He did it through earthly provisions, earthly provisions. Now over in the book of Genesis, and we don't have the time to read all of this in detail, but I've written for you on your outline, Genesis 1, 29 through 31. Now notice what it says, and I've, I've broken this up in Genesis 1, 29 through 31, where it, where it says, I have given you, the Lord is speaking, I have given you every plant, every tree, every beast of the earth, every bird, everything that moves, every green plant for food, and behold, it was very good. You see, you go back and read the entire uh, chapters of the creation of the world, Genesis 1 and 2, and it says when God did this, he said it was good. 
God created this and it was good and it was good and it was good. When he created man, he said it's very good, very good. Now the reason why I'm saying that Jesus does this, that he created the world, because that's what he did. Jesus created the world. We always say God created, when God, in fact the Bible begins, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Well remember, Jesus is God. He's just as much God as the Father or the Holy Spirit. They're all three equal. One's not greater than the other. One is not more powerful than the other. One's not, not more knowledgeable than the other. They're all God. They're all equal in everything that they are and in everything that they do. And Jesus played a critical role in the creation of the world. How do you know that, Pastor? The Bible tells me so. That's how. Listen to this. In John chapter 1 and verse 3. All things came into being through him. Well, who is the him? Well, in my Bible, the word him is spelled with a capital H. And remember, I told you that anytime you find such a word spelled in the scriptures with a capital H or capital letter like Lord, that's a reference to Jesus. So he is saying in John 1, 3, all things came into being through him, through Jesus, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. So John begins his gospel by saying, who created the world? Jesus did. Not only that, notice this, 1 Corinthians 8, 6. 1 Corinthians 8, 6 says, there is but one God, the Father from whom are all things, and we exist for him, one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. All things are by him. That's just the Bible's way of saying he created everything. Colossians 1.16, for by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, where the thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. So again, Paul says it's Jesus who created this world, Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. So did Jesus provide for us? Yes, he has. How? Out of the goodness of his own heart and soul. Because it was Jesus along with the Father and the Holy Spirit who in Genesis chapter 1 said that he created the plants and said, that's good. He created the birds and said, that's good. He created the, the fish in the sea, that's good. He created man and said, that's very good. That was Jesus providing everything for us that we need on this earth to exist. But not only did he provide earthly provisions, he provided spiritual provisions as well. In Romans 8, 3, it says, for what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So, you know, when the rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Remember what Jesus said to him? You know the commandments, do them. And he said, well, which ones? And Jesus named some of the commandments, he, he, uh, the last five or six of them that he mentioned. Uh, but you'll notice one thing that he, I told you the other day when we looked at this. There was one commandment uh, that Jesus didn't give him. It was the last one. Thou shalt not covet. 
Jesus doesn't say that when he said to the young man, you know the commandments, do them. He said, well, which ones? And he named them. But he left out the covenant. Why? Because that was what the rich young ruler was guilty of. Because it says he went away greatly depressed and discouraged and saddened because he had great riches. And he didn't want to, he didn't want to separate himself from them. Jesus said, take your, your possessions and sell them, give it to the poor and come follow me. And he wasn't willing to do that. And then Jesus said to the disciples how difficult it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's not impossible. It's just difficult. Because Jesus said you cannot hang on to the manna, ma- uh, mammon, uh, which is money, and the kingdom of God too. You can't serve two masters. You can only serve one. And so this young man wasn't willing to do that. And so you can't be saved by keeping. You would have to keep every single law of the Lord every minute of every day for every day of your life in order to enter the kingdom of heaven and there's not a soul on the face of this earth who has ever been able to do that, who is doing that or who ever will do that. You cannot be saved by keeping the law. You're only saved by the grace of Almighty God and when Jesus died on the cross, he wasn't doing away with the law. He said, I came to fulfill it and he met all of the requirements of the law He did what you and I could not do, dying in your place on the cross. And when I embraced Jesus Christ as my Lord and my Savior, I became qualified to stand before the Lord and be accepted. Not because of what I have done, but because of what Jesus has done. So he has provided for you, provided for you earthly possessions as well as spiritual. Then the fifth thing. God's goodness inspires us to do good to other people. 1 Peter 2.21 For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. So you're to follow in the steps of Jesus and we're to do good to other people just as Jesus did good to other people. Did Jesus do good to other people? Oh yes he did. You read the four Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you'll see all the things that Jesus did. And yet not all of them, because John closes his, Bible, his, his Gospel by saying there are many other things that Jesus did, and there are not enough libraries in the world to contain everything that Jesus said and did that was good. None. But we know there are many things that he did. I, I just remind you of some. He fed 5,000 people with a little boy's sack lunch. That's all it took. He multiplied it and fed them. 5,000 people. He calmed the storm. He raised the dead. He gave sight to the blind. He cast out demons and so forth. Jesus went about doing good. And Peter tells us he has set an example for us. We likewise are to go about doing good. Jesus himself said, let your light so shine before men that they may see what? Your good works and glorify your father who is in heaven. We're not saved for good works, but we're to by good works, but we are saved to do good works. We're to follow the example of Jesus On another occasion, our Lord's talked about the end times when he will return to this earth and he will gather all the people of the earth together like a shepherd would gather his flock together and he'd separate the sheep from the goats. And he would say to those who who are the goats, that is the lost people, he said, I was hungry and you didn't do anything to feed me. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, but you didn't invite me in. I was naked, you never clothed me. I was sick, you never visited me. I was in prison, you never came to me. 
And they will say, well, when did we ever see you like that? And Jesus will respond, inasmuch as you did not do it to the least of these, you didn't do it to me. On the other hand, he will say to the sheep, I was hungry. You gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you ministered to me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Well, when did we ever see you like this? To the extent that you did it to these, my brothers. Even so, the least of them, you did it to me. So the goodness of the Lord motivates us and inspires us to do good to other people. John Wesley, the leader and founder of the Wesleyan Methodist movement once said, do all the good you can, by all the means you can, in all the ways that you can, in all the places that you can, at all the times that you can, and to all the people that you can. The sixth and final thing, good, God's goodness motivates us to worship him, to worship him. In Psalm 107, verses 1 and 2, the psalmist wrote, O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from the hand of the adversary. The adversary, as you know, is the devil, and the Lord has delivered us from the hands of the devil. And as we gather for worship, we are to worship him in spirit and in truth. We're to talk about him. Notice what it says in Psalm 107. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Say so. So you're saying so this morning, I assume, by your presence here today, that you love Jesus, that you've tasted the goodness of God, and that you're here to testify and verbally say that God is good. God is good. God is good. All the time. Amen. See? God is good. Say it. Say it over and over again, wherever you go, that God is good. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. But not only are we to talk about it, we're to celebrate it. And that's what we do every Sunday when we gather here to worship in the wonderful choir and orchestra and Linda and Richard in the, in the organ and the piano. Lead us in our worship of the Lord as we raise our voices in praise and gratitude to God, thanking him for all the good things that he has done for us. In the book of Acts chapter 2 verses 41 through 47 it says that those who had received Peter's word and were baptized and all who believed were together day by day continuing from, uh, with one mind in, in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. They were praising God and having favor with all the people and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. They all got together. Now in those days they got together in houses. Why? Because, well, they didn't have churches building, church buildings like what we have. And the only place they had to meet was in people's houses. There's, I don't know of a house in town that could accommodate everybody who's here today in one place. This is just not, so we, we built this building. Uh, and, and we've dedicated it to the worship of God so that we would have a, a house of worship that we could come to and worship the Lord and celebrate his goodness and his kindness, his mercy, his love, and his grace. And we are to worship him. That's what we do when we gather here today. We're not here to worship some pagan God. We're not here to, to do something other than to lift up Jesus Christ and honor him and love him and praise him and worship him. Three reasons why we worship God. Number one, God desires it. Did you know that? 
what you're doing here today, not just listening to me. I hope I'm just a man. I'm not God. You, I'm trying to help you to worship the Lord by listening to a proclamation of a word from his, from his holy word. But God deserves our worship. In John 4, you remember when Jesus uh, was talking to the woman at the well and uh, she was confused. She said, uh, our people say that we're to worship God here and your people say to worship God there. You know what Jesus said? It doesn't matter whether you worship God here or worship there. You worship God in spirit and in truth. And then in John 4, 23, Jesus said to the woman at the well, for such people, the father seeks to be his worshiper. So God desires people to worship him. He desires for you to worship him. But not only does God desire it, God deserves it. God deserves it. The word worship, W-O-R-S-H-I-P, worship, actually comes from two different words. Worth-ship. Worth, meaning value, precious. And when you worship God, in essence, what you're doing, you're recognizing the value of God. The worthiness of God. You're saying God is worthy of my praise. God deserves it. He demands it. He's God. We worship him. He is worth it. Worth it. And then the third reason is because God commands it. Your being here today to worship the Lord is an act of obedience on his part. In Deuteronomy 6.13 it says, You shall fear only the Lord your God and you shall worship him and swear by his name. The word swear doesn't mean profane, that you, that you start cursing. It just means that, if you, that you take an oath, just like if you're in a, uh, a courtroom and you take an oath that you promise to tell the truth and uh, nothing else but the truth, so help you God. You're not cursing, you're just taking an oath. And so you're to worship the Lord and, and you're to do it because the Lord has commanded it. I've heard people say, well, I don't, I don't have to go to church to be a Christian. Well, that's true. You, you don't have to come to church to, to, to worship to God and, be, and, and you don't have to come to church to be a Christian. You don't have to cook your food either to eat it. But it tastes a lot better. No, you don't have to come to church to be a Christian, but I tell you what, if you are a grateful Christian, you will. Are you grateful? Surely you are, you wouldn't be here today, but there are many who, whose names are on the roll of this church and whose people's names are on the rolls of a lot of other churches in the world. And they just got their name on the roll, but God, when he comes back, is not gonna look on a church roll to see if you're saved. He's gonna look at the book of life. And if you're not there, I got news for you. You're not going to heaven. So, you worship the Lord, you're a member of the church, an active member, you just don't have your name on the list. Going to church doesn't make you a Christian, but if you're a grateful Christian, you will go there to celebrate and to worship God's goodness. God wants to be praised. You're probably taught your children to say, thank you. Somebody give your child something? What do you say? Thank you. Well, how often do they say thank you? Every, every, about once a week? Once a year, maybe? No, you say every time somebody gives you something, you ought to say thank you. Has God ever given you anything? You ought to say thank you, not just verbally, but to worship the Lord, to live your life for him. Live your life for him. Praise is not complete until it has been expressed and the goodness of God gives us ample opportunity. 
So count your blessings. Name them one by one. Count your blessings and see what God has done. Count your blessings. Name them one by one. Count your many blessings and see what God has done. God is good. All the time. Amen and amen. Let's bow together. Father, we willingly, gladly, eagerly bow in our hearts and spirit today to declare indeed that you are good and that we have tasted and have drunk deeply into the well of your goodness and nothing else has ever nor ever will satisfy us like you. We thank you and praise you for what you are in and through Jesus Christ who gave himself for us that he might meet the greatest thirst and hunger of man's heart and that is life everlasting and the forgiveness of sin. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for the work that you do in bringing conviction to our hearts. And as we enter this time of invitation, should there be one here today who's never tasted the goodness of God, Father, Holy Spirit, speak to their hearts. Holy Spirit, bring to their hearts the conviction and convince them beyond a shadow of a doubt that there's nothing else nor anyone else who can satisfy like Jesus and give them the courage to step out and to come forward and make public their profession of faith in Christ. If there are others here today who are looking for a church home or just whatever the need may be, just to come and pray at the altar or whatever it might be, if God's leading them, Father, we'll give you the honor and the praise. In your name I pray, amen. Brother Andre is going to lead us in our hymn of invitation. And as we stand to sing, God is moving you to come forward. I'll be here at the front to receive you.